but invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. That's the very last book of the Bible, and we are in the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible, chapter 22. Uh, We began our study of this book about a year ago, uh, last summer, and we have been slowly and steadily uh, going through it and learning about how much of a blessing this book is for God's people, uh, perhaps particularly in days like we find ourselves now. And we come today to verses 10 through 15 of chapter 22. I'm actually going to begin reading in in verse 6 of chapter 22, and I'll read down through verse 15. We're going to focus on verses 10 through 15. And he, that's the angel, said to John, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to enter to the, excuse me, may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would prepare our hearts to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. That indeed you would remind us this morning of who we are as your people in Christ. And as a result, how we should live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're getting closer and closer to the end of Revelation. I think I'm going to be able to squeeze in one more sermon. Uh, uh, as we finish up uh, in two weeks on June the 14th with the final verses of Revelation. But as we get closer to the end, and especially as we have other brothers and sisters in Christ with us today who haven't been a part of our study, let me give you just a quick reminder of some of the main things, the the big picture things that we have been learning as we have been going. Uh, The book of Revelation is a letter that was written uh, from John as he was given the information by an angel who got the information from the Lord Jesus himself. So it's Jesus, through John, uh, giving this letter to Christians in the first century in the area that we call Asia Minor. They were dealing with persecution. They were dealing with suffering. They were dealing with incredible trials. 
And God wrote them this letter to encourage them as God's people to persevere, to keep going, to not give up, to not lose hope. To remember the gospel is true. This book, Revelation, was not given to God's people uh, and, and meant to be hard to understand or uh, uh, scary in some way. It was actually meant to be read much like a children's storybook. And the big main point that God has been getting across through Revelation is that He is the Lord God Almighty, that He is in control of history, and in the end, He wins. That King Jesus is victorious and triumphant, and all who are in Christ are victorious and triumphant with Him. We saw early in the letter how it's addressed to seven specific churches that were scattered around Asia Minor. But it's also written to all churches throughout church history. We are living now in what Revelation calls the last days. They began with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and they will end with his second coming. And the bulk of the letter of Revelation is written to God's people to tell them what it's like to live between the advents, between his first coming and his second coming. We looked and saw the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And we talked about how each of those were describing the same time period, the time of God's people between the advents and the judgments, as well as the blessings that are available during that time period. We also saw as we got on into the middle and toward the end of the book, the spiritual curtain, if you will, being pulled back so that we could see the cosmic spiritual battle taking place between good and evil, between Satan and his followers and Jesus and his followers. As we continued on in the final couple of chapters, we saw the description of what will happen when Jesus returns again, how he will defeat and judge and destroy all evil and Satan himself. We saw how there will be the removal of sin, the removal of the effects of the fall, the removal of all sadness and death, and then the arrival of the new heaven and the new earth, the new city, Jerusalem, the new and the better Garden of Eden. Where God's people will dwell together with God, we will see him face to face and we will have constant reminders of the gospel and we will be given glorious and satisfying work to do for all eternity in glorifying God. All of this, this entire book is meant to encourage God's people to persevere, to keep going and not give up whatever we are called to endure now here in this life will pale in comparison to the beauty and to the grace and to the glory that is coming with the new heavens and the new earth. It's also meant as a warning to those who are not in a relationship with Jesus. There is still time now to embrace Christ, to put your faith in Christ alone. But a time's coming when there will no longer be that option when Jesus returns. That's why John instructed or John was instructed not to seal up this prophecy. You see that in verse 10. 
The angel told John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. And those of you that have been a part of our study know that John has been going back over and over and over again into the Old Testament. And here he recalls Daniel, the prophet Daniel. Daniel was given a very similar vision as what we are given here in Revelation. And yet when Daniel received his vision, he was told to seal it up because the time was not near for these things to take place. But now John is told, do not seal them up. Send out this word because the time is near. It's the time to encourage God's people and to warn unbelievers. Last week, we started looking at these final verses, verses 6 through 21. And we talked about how it's a a kind of epilogue. uh, The final thoughts of the letter as John kind of concludes what he is seeing in these visions. And we made the comment last week that New Testament and Revelation scholar Greg Beale said that there's really no notable flow of thought through these final verses. It's just several thoughts that are being lumped together in John's conclusion. Although we do see in these verses five final exhortations to the people of God. Last week we looked at the first two in verses six through nine. That as God's people we are to hold to the true and trustworthy word of God. And that we are to worship only the Lord God Almighty. Today we're going to be looking at the next two of these final five exhortations. We see those in verses 10 through 15. The first one is this. Remember who you are. And the second is live like who you are. If you think about it, those are two of the most fundamental things that we learn in the scriptures. Who we are in relation to God and how we are supposed to live in response to who we are. How we're made right with God or to use a big theological term, justification And the life that God calls us to live in response to what he has done for us or the big theological word sanctification. So it makes sense that John would conclude his letter with these two reminders. The first is this. Remember who you are. You can see that in verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you are in Christ. If you've been united to Jesus through faith then what Revelation reminds you and who you are is that you are one who's had your robe washed. You see that in verse 14. And you'll remember, if you've been part of our study, that's not the first time that that phrase, that idea has come up. In fact, it was used in earlier in Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And and there we read that one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. This is what John is recalling here in verse 14 when he talks about blessed are those who wash their robes. It's this vivid picture of God's people being declared righteous And forgiven in God's sight. That Jesus, as it were, has taken our filthy robe of unrighteousness 
of sin from both original sin and our actual sin. And he has washed it by his own blood. As his blood was shed on the cross, his blood became the payment for our sins, for our unrighteous robe. And what he gives back to us is a robe of righteousness, his righteousness credited to us by faith. If you're a Christian this morning, then that is who you are. Past, present, and future sins have been paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has washed you with the blood that was shed on the cross. You have been declared forgiven. You have been declared righteous in God's sight. Your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. And that is true now and forever. And notice, because that's who you are in Christ, notice what is true of you in verse 14. You have the right to the tree of life. You have the ability to enter into the city by the gates. It's interesting there where it says that those who have had their robes washed in the blood of the lamb have the right to the tree of life. It's actually a very strong little Greek two words, exousia epi. It literally means that those who are in Christ, those who have been washed, have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, have authority, have power over the tree of life. It's this reminder, this, this strong reminder that if you are in Christ, the tree of life has been given to you for your purposes. Our robes have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We have been declared righteous. And now we have authority, we have power to make use of the tree of life. That symbol from both the Garden of Eden and now the new heaven and the new earth of eternal life, eternal fellowship with the Father. Or to put it another way, we're told that we have the right to enter the city, referring to the new Jerusalem city. Referring to heaven itself. And notice we have the right to enter by the gates. We don't have to sneak in from the back door of heaven. As if we are not quite worthy. We are fully worthy because of Jesus Christ and his blood that has been shed for us. To enter in by the very gates of the city of heaven. Those gates that we saw earlier that are protected by angelic beings. That is who you are. If you're in Christ, I want you to notice one other thing before we move on. It's in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. It's actually a present active verb for Christians. But the event that's being described is something that has taken place in the past. The Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts. We've been made alive spiritually by the work of the Holy Spirit. We've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've had our sins forgiven. We've been declared righteous in God's sight. We've been adopted into his family. All of that has taken place in the past if you're a Christian today. But there's also a sense in which Christians have the privilege of continually washing their robes in the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we lose our salvation or our status of righteousness and have to go back to try to get it from God over and over again. But what it does mean that is that until Jesus comes back or that we die and go to be with him, we will sin against the Lord. For the Christian, all of life is to be repentance, as Martin Luther said. We sin 
And then we come with a conviction as the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. We come and repent and turn away from our sin and turn back to the Lord. And we hear the good news of the gospel of grace. And we are reminded that our sins have been paid for. We have the reminder of being washed with the blood of Jesus and we move forward in the Christian life again and again and again, continually and constantly. We come back to Jesus and we repent and we hear the gospel message and we believe and trust in the forgiveness of our sins. We go through that process every single week here at Trinity in our worship services. We start with the reminder of God's character, of his holiness. We see our unrighteousness in comparison We spend time confessing and repenting together and privately. We hear the good news of God's grace and we believe the gospel and we respond by praising the Lord. By being faithful in our stewardship, by hearing the word and seeking to live more and more like our Savior. In one sense, uh, the weekly worship of God is a model for us of what we ought to be doing all throughout the week. And notice as we do that. We're told in verse 14, we are blessed. It's a blessing to come to Christ over and over again to confess our sins and to hear the wonder and truth of the gospel that is ours because we are in Christ Jesus. I heard a story this past week. It's a true story. It's one of those stories that you hear and you think, I can't believe I've never heard that before. I can't believe I haven't heard those details before. It's the story of Joaquin von Ribbentrop. Joaquin von Ribbentrop served as the foreign minister to Hitler in the Nazi regime from 1938 to 1945. He was actively involved in orchestrating the lies and the deception that would lead to World War II. He had first-hand involvement in sending Jewish people to the death camps. At the end of the war, he was captured and arrested, and he was put on trial at Nuremberg. Eventually, he was convicted, and he was sentenced to death. Along with about 21 other Nazi officers, he was held in a military prison in Nuremberg until the time of his execution. The prison had a chaplain, Henry Garrick, He was a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor, and he had been assigned to be the chaplain of that prison and specifically the chaplain of those Nazi officers. He met with them regularly. He shared the gospel with them. He prayed with them. He invited them to the weekly services of worship. And of the handful of the soldiers, the the Nazi officers that would go to the service, most of them went simply out of an opportunity to get out of their cells, out of the monotony and the boredom of waiting for their execution. And that was true for von Ribbentrop as well. He went to the services regularly, but it was simply to get out of the boredom of waiting for his death. But over weeks and months, interacting with Pastor Garrick, attending the services, hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit was at work. And eventually, von Ribbentrop made a profession of faith in Christ. He embraced the gospel and had his robes of unrighteousness washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. His execution day arrived, October the 16th, 
Von Ribbentrop was selected to be the first one to be executed. Pastor Garrick met him at his cell and walked with him from his cell to the scaffold. He was asked if he had any last words to say. And one of the very last things that he said was this. I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. And then he turned to Pastor Garrick and he said, I will see you again. How can a Nazi war criminal be forgiven of such horrific sins and declared righteous in the sight of God? There is only one way. It is by having his robe of unrighteousness washed in the blood of the Lamb of God. The Holy Spirit and the gospel of grace are powerful enough to save sinners, even like Joachim von Ribbentrop. And even like people like you and people like me. And here's the interesting thing. Von Ribbentrop didn't have an opportunity to go out and to live a life of good works. He didn't have a time to go out and to make up for all the evil that he had done. Similar to the thief on the cross. It's a reminder to us that salvation is entirely and only by God's grace, not by works so that no one can boast. And yet, at the same time, Christians are called to live a life of good works. Not in order to be declared righteous, but because we have been declared righteous. And so for Christians who do have the opportunity to live a life of good works and service to the Lord, it makes sense that John would go on and encourage God's people who were reading Revelation 22, not only to remember who they were, but also to live like who they are. You see that in verses 11 and following. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the in the end. John shows this stark contrast, or rather Jesus shows this stark contrast in verses 11 and 15. At the end of time, when Jesus returns and the final judgment begins, the evildoer, the one who is characterized as being filthy, won't be able to change because it'll be too late at that time. Those who are called the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and those who practice falsehood will be kept out. And that's to contrast with what John says in verse 11. For those who have had their robes washed with Jesus' blood, the righteous and the holy. He goes, he says at the end of verse 11, you righteous do right. You holy be holy. These are imperatives. These are commands. Remember who you are and live like who you are. Understand that you've been declared righteous in God's sight through Jesus and now pursue a righteous and holy life. Why? Well, we're given two reasons in verses 12 and 13. The first one's at the beginning of verse 12. He says, behold, I am coming soon. This is Jesus speaking. 
He actually says this three times in chapter 22. We saw it in verse 7 last week. We see it today in verse 12. And we'll see it again in two weeks at the end of the chapter in verse 20. Three separate times in this one chapter, Jesus speaking says to his people, Behold, I am coming soon. It must be something that he wanted to emphasize, something that he wanted to make sure that we would remember. That as God's people, we must live every day, every moment with the mindset that Jesus is coming soon. Now, we don't know when it will be. It could be today. It could be next week. It could be in two years. It could be in 200 years. I mean, after all, Jesus said this 1900 years ago. But it doesn't matter when he comes. Christians are to have the mindset that Jesus could come at any moment. And that can be a motivation for us to do right and to be holy. When you are looking at things online that you shouldn't be looking at, would you want Jesus to come back at that very moment? When you're cheating on a test in school, would you want that to be the moment that Jesus would come back? When you're posting things online that are full of cynicism and language that dishonors another image bearer of God, is that the moment that you want Jesus to come back? When you're disobeying your parents by not doing what you're told right away. Is that when you would want Jesus to come back? When you're being greedy and not generous with the blessings that God has given you to share with others. Is that the moment that you would want King Jesus to return? Jesus says, I am coming back soon. Be ready. You who are righteous. Be righteous. You who are holy, be holy. Live like who you are at all times. There's another reason that we're given here in verses 12 and 13 for why we should live like who we are. Not only because Jesus is coming back and coming back soon, but also because of what it says after that. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. Jesus is coming back soon. And when he does, he will bring with him his recompense. It's a word we don't use very often now. It just simply means reward. And notice, only Jesus is the one who is worthy to reward his people. Verse 13 tells us he alone is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If you've been with us in our study, those are... Those are descriptors, those are titles that were used earlier in Revelation of the Lord God Almighty himself. And now Jesus takes them, puts them together and applies them to himself. Only he is the the one who is worthy to be coming back again and bringing his reward for his people. Now, what he says might make some of us a little nervous at the end of verse 12. He's coming to repay each one for what he has done. That sounds an awful lot like we are saved by what we do. 
But we know that that's definitely not what is being said. And we know that for two reasons. The first reason is because of what the rest of Scripture tells us. When we come to a, a, a verse or a passage that we're not entirely sure what it means, it perhaps is confusing or it seems contradictory to us, what do we do? We go to other places in the Scriptures that are even more clear so that we can understand what the Bible is telling us. So we think of passages like this, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. Or we think of Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times in that one verse, we are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. One more, we think of Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There are many Many more scriptures. The, the Bible is clear. We don't go to heaven because of our good works. We also know that that's not what's being said here. Because, secondly, because of what we already talked about in verse 14. Jesus said in verse 14, the way that we have the right to eternal life, the way that we have right to the tree of life and entrance into the city of heaven is not because of our good works, but because we've had our robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. So, what does verses 11 and 12 mean? It means this. Good works are necessary to get the reward of heaven. Not because we earn our entrance into heaven through them, but because they prove our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sanctification, our good works... Prove our justification, our being declared righteous in God's sight. What we do and how we live proves who we are. We think again what we read in Ephesians 2. It is by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not our own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And yet, he goes on and says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. It's a gift of God. But we are created in Jesus, we are created in Jesus Christ for good works. Uh, many of you are familiar with the Reformation theologian John Calvin. And you likely know that he wrote a massive and an intensely pastoral book about the Christian life. It's called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. 
It's about 1,500 pages long. Perhaps some fun summer reading for us this summer. There are four sections to his this tome on the Christian life. And in the third section, he spends time talking about the way that we receive the grace of Christ and the benefits that we get from God's grace and the effects that follow from that grace. How we become Christians, the benefits that we get from the gospel and how that is to change our life. But it's interesting how John Calvin begins that section. He describes first what a Christian is like, how a Christian is to live, what sanctification is to be looking like. And then he goes on to describe salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, our justification. Why? Calvin said that he wanted to show that our sanctification, our good works, never earns God's grace. They're always imperfect. But our good works prove God's work, God's grace in our lives. Our good works prove that we are Christians. Both of these things, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, both of these are meant to motivate us and to live like who we are, to have a life filled with good works. Jesus is coming back soon. And when he does, he will bring the reward of heaven for his people who have proven their faith. Through their good works. What a powerful motivator it is for us to love and serve our neighbors, to treat every image bearer with the dignity and honor and respect that they deserve, to seek justice and well being of the oppressed and those in need and the widows and the orphans and the marginalized, to obey the civil authorities as much as they don't call us to sin against God, of not letting any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths of honoring and respecting and obeying our parents and being more focused on others than we are on ourselves and being honest and above reproach in our work and being patient and long suffering in loving others who don't love us back the way that we desire Jesus says through John, let the righteous do right. Let the holy be holy because you are the ones who have had your robes washed in the blood of the lamb of Jesus Christ. You've been given the right to the tree of life and entrance into the city of heaven. Remember who you are and live like who you are. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that it is so easy for us to forget who we are in Christ. We thank you for the reminders that you've given to us, the means of grace that point us to the reality of who we are as your dearly loved people who have had our robes washed white and clean forever in the blood of our Savior. I pray for those who are prone to find it hard to believe that that could be true of them. 
Give them strength of faith to believe what your word says, even in those moments when they are tempted to doubt it. And Father, we also pray for those who find it hard to actually live like who we are. Find ourselves living double-minded. We pray that you would cause the gospel of your grace and mercy to work powerfully in our lives through the work of your spirit so that we would live lives like you've created us to live as righteous people because of Christ, that we would be righteous as holy people because of Christ Jesus, that we would be holy. Help us, we pray, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we ask. And in Jesus' name, amen.